This is History Replays Today, the Richmond History Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. My name is Jeff Major. This is episode 39, and it is being posted on February 1st, which means this is the beginning of Black History Month. So we're going to be talking about the life of Maggie Lena Walker. As a guest, I have Agina Quezon Rogers. She is the supervisory park ranger at the Maggie L. Walker National Historic Site. Maggie Walker, you know, most people talk about her or bring up her name. Somebody says something about she was the first woman to own a bank in the United States or something like that. Well, she was actually the first black woman to charter a bank in the U.S. and the first female to be president of a bank. Um, but she's, you know, she's much, much more than the St. Luke's Penny Savings Bank, which was her bank. Uh, she's a fascinating, amazing woman, I mean, really amazing woman. And I mean, really interesting as you'll hear in this conversation. Um, if you've never been to the Maggie Walker historical, uh, national historic site in Jackson Ward, you should go. It is really fantastic. Go see some of her stuff. Uh, you know, she has this amazing, uh, uh, wheelchair that she, she, she's, you know, found this wheelchair at the end of her life. It's it's amazing. I mean, it's a really cool. It's probably the best looking wheelchair I've ever seen. It's like a looks like a lazy boy has uh, the handles on it so people could pull her in and out of her car. Go check it out. Really fascinating place. Uh, and for Black History Month, they're going to be actually running some some really cool vintage films uh, in a series uh, that they're calling uh, Matinees with Miss Maggie. They're going to have a different film every day, every, all these days on February 2nd, 14th, the 21st, the 28th. It's different, different movies that uh, pertain to, you know, Miss Walker, Jackson Ward, or some of the other, you know, world-famous entertainers from, from the area. Uh, some of them are silent. Some of them are not, you know, I know including one of the ones that I was actually really excited. We actually talk a little bit about it in the, um, during the episode, uh, they're going to be playing Emperor Jones on the 21st. Uh, it's the film version. Uh, it doesn't have Charles Gilpin in it, um, but it's the play that makes Charles Gilpin uh, one of the more, most famous actors in the country. Right? Um, it became really, really well known. Uh, and some of you may know that Charles Gil- Gilpin is also the namesake of the oldest and I believe the largest public housing development in Richmond, Gilpin Court. But, but all four movies, they're going to be shown at the Maggie Walker Visitor Center at 600 North 2nd Street. It's right near the corner of 2nd and Lee Streets. Uh, you can check out their Facebook page for all kinds of updates and uh, the, all the details on all that. Uh, and Oh, wait. Did I mention that they're all free? Right? Free movies. Holy smokes. You can't beat that. If you're looking for something else to do during Black History Month... Um, River City Sags is going to be highlighting their Black History Segway Tour, which, in fact, goes by the Maggie Walker House, uh, talks about the, the slave trade in Richmond, Jackson Ward, Civil Rights Movement. You know, a, a good bit, a good bit is covered in that two-hour tour. And for February, it's $50 for two people. It's $25 a person. Holy smokes. And like all of River City Seg's Segway Adventures, right, includes a full training session on the only indoor Segway-specific training area in Virginia, right? Find out more information about that at rivercitysegs.com, on Facebook, 
um, on Twitter at 804SEGS or by calling 804-343-6105. Make your reservations now. Do it. But getting to the conversation with uh, Agena Kason Rogers, uh, I do have to admit, this is the second time I sat down with her. Um, that she was really, you know, second time she was nice enough to sit down with me. I mean, heck, she was nice enough to sit down with me the first time. Uh, but the first one, I actually messed up the recording. I felt terrible about it. Uh, it was a really great conversation, and I fouled the whole thing up. But she was nice enough to sit down with me a second time. And unfortunately, I was trying out some new microphones, trying to make it sound better. And as you'll hear, there's a certain point in the conversation where her her voice kind of drops out a little bit. It's still listenable. just doesn't sound as good as I wanted it to. Uh, I'm definitely frustrated with myself on that. Um, I hope I think I've, I think I hope I figured out what the problem was. Um, but if you do hear it drop out a little bit, that's not because uh, your earbuds or whatever are messed up. It's just just the way it is. And I apologize about that. But it's some great content in here definitely well still still worth listening to um but i started out asking her not about maggie walker per se um but about black history month uh because you know the first time i was recording it i was just going to post it on the next opportunity you know it didn't have anything to do with black history month and i don't want people to think that you know maggie walker the only reason she's featured is because it's black history month this is an amazing woman right i mean this is an amazing richmonder it's amazing American, right? And, and it's well worth well worth thinking about that. Um, I, I just think it's interesting. You know, it's uh, one month, the shortest month out of the year where we're supposed to focus on, on our history, a, a, a specific section of our history. Um, regardless of what race you are, this is your history, right? So, but anyways, me babbling about this, uh, let's hear what Agena Kason Rogers had to say about it. It's more of a, an emphasis that black history is American history. Right. It occur and it's a f- part of the fabric of the United States and the development of where we are today. Yet you still have a need to bring it to the forefront at certain times. And it's a, it has it reaches back to Carter G. Woodson, mm-hmm. almost uh, over almost a hundred years ago, where the history of African Americans in the United States was not being told in its full form. Right. That you weren't being the African Americans were not being properly recognized for their contributions to this country, mm-hmm. and by starting Black History Week. In February, honoring with the idea that you were thinking about Lincoln's birthday being during that month and Frederick Douglass's birthday being that month, it's a good time to focus the nation on telling the full history of African Americans. And it's still needed because it uh, it allows you to look at what has happened in the past. So right. if, if what the Association of the Study of African American Life and History does each year is that they set the theme for Black History Month. That's the organization that Carter G. Woodson founded. 
Okay. And when they do that, they pick a certain aspect of it. So this year, they're focused on what was happening 100 years ago that led to the need for Black History Month. So 100 years of African-American um, uh, progress towards being able to um, become president of the United States, mm -hmm. being able to effectively have um, civil rights recognized and being, being able to be politically active. But you have to look back to see where you were to understand where you are right? and also understand how much further you need to go. So that's why Black History Month is, is still relevant because it, it gives you that prism to look back. But it, and I guess, and I don't, I apologize, I'm not trying to make you, uh, mm -hmm. you know, um, I don't know, defend, defend mm -hmm. it or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it's just something that I feel is, uh, you know, I personally feel sometimes like I'm into a marketing ploy. It right. Can, that at its, I'll, I'll say it this way, at its worst, it could be that mm -hmm. it's a, a way of just promoting, um, almost, almost like President's Day, where it becomes a sales pitch. Right. If you take it in the spirit that it was created, in the spirit that it's meant, it isn't a sales pitch. Right. It, it, it is something that will bring attention to to what you're facing now. And, and the, the issues that came out um, because of slavery, because of segregation, uh, still build to some of the tensions that we have within our society now. Right. And to, to understand the background of it helps us look at what where we need to go forward. But I guess so, the, the, one of the things, that, should we not be doing that all year? Right, you know right, what I'm saying? Right, right, right. Yeah, and and what you, the for example, what the Park Service does is that we have special emphasis months, or the federal government too, uh, special emphasis months throughout the year. Mm -hmm. So you have, uh, and, and for a purpose, you have um, Hispanic Heritage Month up in September to October, mm -hmm. where you bring that aspect of history out, and um, uh, the so. And there are others too, as well that we we do throughout the year to just bring it to the forefront that all of this is a part of the tapestry. All right, of this is part of the history. Absolutely. So I think that it, I I feel that it's still necessary, and you integrate it throughout the year as well. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I think it definitely mm -hmm. is still necessary, but I, I, you know, I don't know. Mm -hmm. It's on my own. Uh, I guess personal, you know, mm -hmm. kind of confession that it's like it's a weird, um, you know, we're gonna like we're gonna be posting this on February first, but mm -hmm. I mean, I would have posted this, you know, last time we tried to do it. I mean, it was gonna be any time yeah. of the month, right? And it almost, I almost feel like it uh, somewhat belittles the fact that this amazing woman. But now we're, you know, it's only going to be posted because it's in the time of the month where we mm -hmm. have to get, or, or the time of the year. Mm -hmm. You know, you know what I'm, I mean? Does that make I, any I, sense? I think I understand what you're saying. I, I believe that by when you put it in February, it's being it's it's it, what the country is looking at all the time, right? And hopefully, it will inspire people to look even at other parts of the year, something eventually, because there's so much coming out 
at that period of time that you can't hit all of it. Right. But then you say, well, oh, I remember that. And and then go back to it throughout the year. We are open. We are here every day of the year. Right. So perhaps something that tickles a person's imagination or, or interest in February will say, well, I can't go right now, but... How right. about when I'm on vacation in, in March, in May, or or during the summer, or in the fall, when I can, uh, if I'm a teacher, and I can get my class to think about it. So it gives the opportunity right. to say, oh, this is a, a great woman. Let's see, because they're around all, all year. Right. Let's plan yeah. on coming back at another time. You don't have to be there in February, be here in February, right? because we're here. Sure, yeah, yeah. Year round. So I think, you know. Yeah, and I think that's where it's, you know, as, I guess, as someone who tries to uh, talk about this stuff all year, I mean, I'm sure the same way, it just sort of seems, uh, and understanding that there's a bunch of people that don't even care, you know, live their lives without looking at history, and no matter what the race of the people, (laughs) they don't care, you know, any of this stuff. Uh Um, I mean, it does do something, but it, you know, I, I... I don't know. We are, as a group, moving towards thinking about it year-round because of the effects of this history in our day-to-day lives. Right. And uh, so we, it's, it's changed that it's not just emphasized in February, mm-hmm. that you have it have this interwoven, and that didn't used to be that way. Right. Like when I was in school so many years ago, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, coming out in uh, sixth grade in 1976, right. I'll admit that. Um, and it wasn't, it was just starting in Rona, Virginia to be um, completely woven into the right, stories sure. and into our education. Uh, now you find it more easily. In, the, in education, on television, on the radio, uh, and little snippets throughout the year. Absolutely. Okay. So that that change came because of starting small. Right. With saying, well, let's emphasize this history. Sure. So now it's like, well, we can't pack all that in one month. So right. let's sure. move it throughout. Um, yeah, and I guess I just, you know, sometimes I just worry that people are, you know, it's March one, so let's you know put the Confederate flag back up, you know, or yeah. So, but anyways, I guess uh, getting to getting to uh, Maggie Walker, um, she is uh, what her mom and, and I guess uh, what her mom was a slave or her mom was free. She was she was with uh, uh, Elizabeth Van Lu, right? Oh, correct. Her mother was a cook's assistant. Before at the Van Lu Mansion mm-hmm. with Elizabeth Van Lu, and her mother Maggie Walker's mother Elizabeth Draper is not listed as being enslaved or part of the uh, being a slave at the Van Lu Mansion. So it appears that she was free at the time that Maggie Walker was born. Okay, uh, she had been enslaved. So the way we um, ex- explain the history or look at the history is that she was a former slave mm-hmm. um, just a teenager at the time that Maggie was was born and she was a, uh, one of Van Lu's slaves or we don't know we okay. don't know where 
she, she was enslaved, but she is Mrs. Walker would look back and say, you know, her mother was once a, a slave, mm-hmm. but at the time it doesn't look like she was owned by the Van Loo's, but she okay. was working at the Van Loo mansion. Okay. So we, it's, it's she was free from what our the historical record shows right at the time that Mrs. Walker was born. And then her dad is a Confederate. He was a at that time in 1864 uh, a a an Irish immigrant who had come to South Carolina, and in 1864 he was with the Confederate Army working as a, a nurse at Chimborazo Hospital. Mm-hmm. So he was a Confederate soldier at Chimborazo Hospital. Later on, he becomes a journalist in the Richmond area. Hmm. Worked for the New York Herald. He was a correspondent in Richmond for mm-hmm. the New York Herald. And then, so when Mrs. Walker is writing her biographies, or or when she's writing now, she says her father was a journalist. Huh. So later on, he is. But when uh, see, there was the uh, for a long time, it was thought that Mrs. Walker's birth year was 1867, mm-hmm. something that she said herself she was born in 1867 um, but with the work of Elvatrice Belchus who is a, a local historian uh, we were able to pin down the question of was she really Mrs. Walker really born in 1867 or was it 1865 or 1864 historians had had questions about that because mm-hmm. some of the records just didn't line, align mm-hmm. and when Miss Belchus found a record where Mrs. Walker's stepfather opened a bank account for Maggie when she was eight years old in 1872. That was the firmest evidence that lined up with some previous census records and other other uh, evidence mm-hmm. showing 1864 is actually her birth year. Right. So that changes the narrative a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, uh, about was Elizabeth Draper at Apple's Cupboard. Let me see, I need to back up a little bit. Um, was yeah. that his name, Eccles Cupboard? Eccles Cuthbert. That's a heck is of a his name. name. Oh, yeah, that's nuts. her birth father. Wow, Eccles right. Cuthbert. Eccles yeah. Cuthbert. And he comes up, becomes a very well-known reporter wow. in the city of Richmond. Hmm. Uh, her mother marries William Mitchell, who is mm-hmm. the butler at the Van Lee Mansion. So Maggie takes on the name Maggie Mitchell, and that's what she grows up as, mm-hmm. Maggie Mitchell. But in her own journals or uh, diaries, she says she was four years old when her mother Elizabeth married William Mitchell, which also lines up with the 1864 um, birth year, because right. they married, and they had a certificate, so they married in 1878. Mm-hmm. So. so in his... Uh, I mean, does she just have her math wrong, or is there some sort of significance to being born free? Well, we just don't know that, you know, why she would say 1867. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, but, she would have been, if her mother was free, she would have been considered free, too. Okay. it, It may be that 1867 is the same year that the Independent Order of St. Luke, the organization she was leader of for mm-hmm. for over 30 years uh, was that was the same year that 
they were founded. But it could be also that later in life it is you want to establish that you were never a slave. Right. So which explanation is it? That's going to take some more research. Sure. You know, looking into the, the um, race and identity and what it means to... Did it carry later in the 1920s, 1930s? Did it carry more baggage to right. some, for someone to think that you, uh, to to say that you were born enslaved? Sure. Well, if you can shift your birth year a little bit, yeah, there's no question about it. Right. Um, and is she going to grow up with any kind of relationship with her father or with Eccles Cuthbert? Yeah. There's. Every time you say it, I'm like. <laughs> Well, according to the to the family, there wasn't much wasn't much of a relationship between Mrs. Walker and Eccles Cuthbert, but um, just a few few incidents that they they talk about. William Mitchell was the one she looked to as her father. Okay. And then when he was uh, killed, when she was about twelve years old, uh, her mother raised her and her little brother Johnny, whose father was William Mitchell. Mm-hmm. Um, on her own, so then you know, there yeah, there wasn't much um, that she had that that uh, firm relationship that they had together. Right. And to, just to put in, in back in context too, even if Eccles Cuthbert, a white man, mm-hmm. and Elizabeth Draper, a black woman, wanted to to stay together as a as a relationship, the laws would not have allowed it. Society would not have allowed it. Right. And when you we uh, see Eccles Cuthbert's um, obituary in 1902, it says that he had no children. Okay, right. So, but that's written by his family. And I guess would they have had a? I mean, is this uh, is there an actual relationship with this with her mom? I mean, are they? Are, uh, is an Eccles and mm-hmm. uh, and and I, I mean Elizabeth Draper. Yeah, I mean, are they? Is there any evidence? Are they dating or is there just? We just don't. Just, it's just not there enough for okay. us to to do more than speculate. Right, but and, and she's red, mm-hmm. yeah. So she's born though in Churchill, right? In the Maggie Walker, yes. Yeah, in the family mansion, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. She'll say she was born at or in the family mansion. Right, but when uh, William Mitchell and uh, her mother Elizabeth Mary, mm-hmm. they eventually moved to their own place on College Alley, which is near where the first African Baptist church was. Right, uh, just off of Broad Street, mm-hmm. and that's where she grows up. Right, and that, and how old is she at that point? She's well. Just, they marry when she's about four, so they okay, move somewhere okay. within that period of time to to start their own place to, start, right. to be out on their own and he gets a very good job at a hotel and they're they're doing well but then um, one day he doesn't come home from work he's mm-hmm. um and he's mm-hmm. missing for about five days and they find him dead oh mercy uh, so the police it will say it was um suicide mm-hmm. but the family always thought and maintained that it was a robbery wow okay Again, the discrepancy between sure. police account and right. family account. And so that's one of the first tragedies that Maggie Walker would deal with 
in her life, and she loses many of her family members within her lifetime, mm-hmm. yet still manages to carry on. Right, sure. Um, and what kind of neighborhood is that over by, um, you know, by First African Baptist Church? Is it, mm-hmm. I'm assuming it's all mostly black, a yeah, black neighborhood. Yeah, segregated. Okay, so yeah. In this time, Broad Street serves as the dividing line, essentially, between white Richmond and black Richmond. Mm-hmm. So from Broad Street going north in general, it's the, uh, Af- generally, that's where the, the African Americans uh, uh, are, are concentrated, living in those neighborhoods. And then south is, um, is white Richmond in general, mm-hmm. because you do have some within right. in parts of the neighborhoods. Um, but, and it's obviously not, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, like slums or is it Not like, I mean, are they like, I mean, yeah, I mean, are well, they, if you look at Jackson Ward, okay. Um, you, Mrs. Walker's home specifically, it was built in 1883 for a doctor, a black doctor. Mm-hmm. And then the second owner of the house was also a black physician. Okay. So you have people of, um, affluence in within the the neighborhoods the jackson ward neighborhood Mm -hmm. you also have folks who are uh, a working class too so when it's when you are have these neighborhoods segregated you do have a mix of of social status within okay Okay, so it's not necessarily all it's not necessarily the slum okay just because of being segregated right why is it like i guess um the that area, I guess maybe, I don't know, um, I guess right by the church, because it would have been pretty tight, right? Because they live on an alley, right? Am I mm-hmm. am I crazy there? Or? No, you're not. Um, the way it looks today is going to be vastly different from right. the way it looked at that time. But you do have the First African Baptist Church mm-hmm. uh, that the, the, the people from that from this area would have attended. Mm-hmm. And again, you have various social levels within the church itself. Right. And and what's cool is, you know, if we bump up, you now we're talking about the 1870s, 1880s, Mrs. Walker's mother, Elizabeth Mitchell, was a was working as a laundress. Mm-hmm. And they would, she would send Maggie out to collect the clothes from you know, prominent whites within the area. And then she, Maggie would come back through the streets and carrying the basket of clothes on her head uh, to deliver them back to them after her mother had done the laundry. I mean, just imagine that, mm-hmm. that yeah. picture. And uh, so she would say how she was working from the time she was small. Right. Uh, and when she's looking back, she's a successful businesswoman, successful leader of the Order uh, Independent Order of St. Luke, but she's working just as hard, even though she's risen in status, right. working just as hard as she was when she was a little girl. Just learn that worth ec- work ethic. Work ethic, mm-hmm. right. So even though you didn't have, you may not have had much, especially families just coming out of slavery, mm-hmm. uh, and, and you're building that, that, well, that, um, that, I don't want to say comforting, but building up to where you have what you need, mm-hmm. um, then that, that, that's what she experienced. Right. Um, there were people also who had, in slavery, 
because of the way slavery is in an urban area like Richmond. You have urban slavery in which people get exposed to um, skills mm -hmm. or have and develop skills because they're working as um, working in, in skilled areas. And so even though slavery was harsh, they were, they were able to take those skills that they had learned and mm -hmm. then apply it to going into business for themselves. Right. So you had that nucleus of self-autonomy, um, self mm. you know, the nucleus of autonomy right. that they were able to build from and then pull the community together to build, it, uh, build on up. Right. So in, it, it wasn't completely starting from scratch mm -hmm. with some people. Sure. Okay. I mean, she gets involved in the church at a pretty early age. Pretty early. Um, the story is, goes that she was out playing, and one of the members, of the Sunday school leader of the church, went out and, and saw her there and said, well, you want to come into Sunday school? And so she did, and you know, she um, liked it so much that the next time she came in all spruced up and spiffed up and... And it became uh, her lifelong uh, place to go. I mean, she, she does get pretty heavy as a young person, uh, as a young girl in the church as well, right? So oh, it's yeah. not just later. Right. Um, and is, is that a, uh, a status place? Or, um, I mean, would it have been, um, I guess, as much downtrodden folks you know cause I, I don't know I, I guess sort of my vision is uh, the I don't even know really know how to say it, but um, I mean it's definitely a lot of networking that goes on in the church and I know nowadays I mean that's it's a pretty prestigious I mean the, the first African Baptist Church still exists mm -hmm. right and it's right. It, you know it's a place that you know, I think what Dwight Jones, you know, there's a lot of, you know, prominent folks that go there. Um, yeah, yeah, and there, and that's even a separate congregation. So he has, Dwight Jones is in charge of, I, I don't remember the exact name of the church, but mm -hmm. it's a different congregation from the congregation that Maggie Walker went to. Okay. Okay. But nonetheless, you were right about the networking part, mm -hmm. even during um, when Maggie Walker was going there. It was a place where she would meet people who were doing things uh, actively to improve the community. And she first gets exposed to the Independent Order of St. Luke through being at the First African Baptist Church. Right. And would continue to work with the church, work with community leaders there. And and that's how she got to know how to do the work that she would later on go on to do. Right. So. And and she uh, goes to school, right? She's very good and, I mean, she's pretty clever, yeah, right? Yeah, very, very and sharp. Good student. Right. Um, becomes a teacher, right? And I mean, she that's... does become a teacher mm -hmm. uh, because she goes to the Richmond Public Schools that were established after the end of the, of the Civil War mm -hmm. and works up all the way through the Richmond Public Normal School and be, earns the, earns us, uh, uh, earns the, 
degrees so that she can go and become a teacher. Mm -hmm. She teaches for three years. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, she's going uh, to, to accounting classes somewhere within that period of time. So she learns accounting mm -hmm. and learns about being what it, does, what it takes to be a businesswoman. Mm -hmm. um, to, because as later she would say, economic independence is the only true independence. Right. And so she had that that she was learning along the way. But she runs full into a roadblock when she wants to get married. It's mm -hmm. another part of her life. Um, because the laws in Virginia at the time said that if you were a woman, uh, you had to be single in order to be a teacher. So she had to make the choice between teaching mm -hmm. and going on to have, have you get married to Armstead Walker, whom mm -hmm. she met at the church mm -hmm. and starting her family. So she stops, stops teaching. So that's to when we say that to kids these days, there and even the teachers that are in the room, their their jaws drop. Right. Really. Sure. <laughs> but so it just really gives you a good sense of which not just personal tragedies and obstacles, but just laws that she was having to to work through mm -hmm. and to become a success. All those challenges right. that she had. And, to do. Oh, and it's kind of good that to work that she had to quit, right? I mean, it well, worked she, out. She isn't a type of person that would take that um, sitting at, sitting back and just doing nothing. Right. She just converted or reverted her energies mm -hmm. to working with youth in the Independent Order of St. Luke by establishing the juvenile department, knowing that if you teach a child the ways of the order mm -hmm. and about good hygiene, about manners, about saving. If you work with the children, they'll know and they'll be even better members when they come along as adults. Right. So she saw that as a way of teaching mm -hmm. the youth to be stronger members of their community, more valuable members of the community. Right. And through that, that's how she was able to become well-known within mm -hmm. the circles of the Order of St. Luke. So when it came time for someone to lead the order forward in 1899, she was the, was, a, was a good choice. She'd had experience establishing this group in 1895. She was a natural for doing that. Nice. So it, she turned what to some might be an obstacle, a barrier, something insurmountable, mm -hmm. into something a, a grand uh, opportunity. Right. She would do that throughout. And then at the same time, make those opportunities, or make, create situations where others could take opportunities like that. Right. And, and, and I guess is uh, Armistead, her mm -hmm. husband, is he, he's what, a contractor? He was a, from, from a family of brick contractors. Okay. Very successful. He's, he's doing well. He's doing well. So, right. so it's not as really like a rags to riches as kind of, Regular clothes to super nice clothes, or well, if you look at her, her alone, mm -hmm. it is because they, as a laundress's daughter, right? Okay, she's not going to have much. Armstead's family had established themselves because mm -hmm. of the being um, skilled contractors, so they had to build themselves up after slavery. So you just have, right. you know, just have the. The, the, coming together as a as a good couple, sure, uh, to make their way forward. 
And is the um, are like what is the the, the order of Saint Luke? I mean, it's not a Richmond thing, right? This is a like a national organization. It yeah, um, it started in Maryland. Mary Prout uh, started the organization, the Order of Saint Luke, in Maryland, mm-hmm. and then it, the group begins here uh, in Richmond. And then Richmond becomes the central, the Grand Council okay. of this order. It had been uh, when. Mrs. Walker joined, she was in her teens, and as it progresses, you get towards the end of the century, 1895, 1899, and the leader who's named um, uh, Forrester looks at it, sees that the order is uh, low on funds, deep in debt, membership has dropped off dramatically, and he looks and says, well, perhaps this it, it has filled its purpose. Mm-hmm. But Mrs. Walker did not agree with that. Mm-hmm. She said, well, if no man will step forward to save the order, who's going to save the order? Mm-hmm. And she does. And from that point, the build up to where you have um, a, a, a well-established organization um, and in eventually in 24 states, mm-hmm with over uh, 100,000 members when you include both the adult membership and the youth membership. Wow. It's a growing, vibrant organization by the time that um, she has worked there with it for 30, 35 years. Right. And, and it was already centered in Richmond before she took over? It was, I believe, Four, yes. The okay. council had, was centered in Richmond, the primary council, the grand council. So you had other councils that were local. Right. And then you had the Grand Council. And so she's not only just in charge of the Richmond arm, she's in charge of all of it. That's correct. Wow, so that's, I mean, right off the bat, it's a pretty big, right, right, pretty right. big ordeal. Well, she, you know, from 1899 to like 1910, 19, the, the 1920s, they're building up the organization, and she is traveling everywhere. Hmm. And they have a campaign for one each member to bring in a new member so that they can expand the, the, the numbers and membership of the order. Because the way the order works is that you put funds into it so that you get benefits for when you're sick or um, if you have um, death in the mm-hmm. family or, you know, have, a, have death benefits that are paid out. Mm-hmm. So it, it's essentially insurance. That's right. what it eventually becomes. Right. It has an insurance arm to it. But under Mrs. Walker's leadership, they expand to having a newspaper, expand to having a, uh, which, the bank, which is really where people start to notice her nationally. Mm-hmm. And even I have uh, departments where they open right on Broad Street. Mm-hmm. Right. So Broad Street was right. that dividing line between black and white Richmond. You had to, you're, you usually would establish your businesses within the the black neighborhoods but she was bold enough to have it right there not too far from Paul Hunters, not too far from Miller Road. Right. So here we are. We have the same merchandise that and but our service uh, will be by given by um, African American women who can do just as well as anyone else given the opportunity. Right, and is it just guts, or did she figure out some kind of legal way? Because it seems like that would have been—I mean, there's legal segregation at that point, right? There's legal segregation at that point, yes. I mean, so how does it? I mean, 
I don't know. I mean, if I'm setting up a segregating, segregated system, I mean, that's going to be one of the first laws. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, well, there was a, there was definitely it seems opposition. like a basic. Well, there's definitely opposition to um, having her open the department store there. Uh, there was a, a group that offered to pay her not to open. Mm. They had to work in secret for a couple of years to get it established to you know, to, to get the property and to open it. They open anyway. Right. So that's just boldness to sure. say, you know, here we are. So they're and, one, of, yeah, one of the first to open on Broad Street like that. And, and she, and what time period is this? This is like... This, this is 1905 is when the okay. Emporium opens. The bank opens in 1903. And it's called the St. Luke's Emporium? Saint, the, yeah, the, the department store is called the St. Luke's Emporium. Mm-hmm. And then the bank is, of course, St. Luke Penny Savings Bank. Mm-hmm. And before that, in 1902, it started a newspaper called the St. Luke Herald so that all the members of St. Luke could communicate with each other, know what was going on. Right. And use that paper, not just to say social thing happenings of who's visiting where, but it was a way to, to speak out mm-hmm. against the atrocities of, of segregation, lynching and and these other things. Right. And, and and this is not, I guess, somewhat of a haphazard thing, right? I mean, she comes in with an agenda. She takes over this organization with an agenda. With We're going to do this. With a vision, yes. She, in 1901, just two years after she becomes appointed the leader of, the, the grand, right-worthy grand secretary of the Independent Order of St. Luke. They know how to get titles. They did. And later on, it becomes right-worthy grand secretary treasurer uh-huh. of the Independent Order of St. Luke. So anyhow, um, within two years, she goes before the group and says, shows her vision of how they're going to grow, which would include opening a bank, open, uh, having a, a newspaper or some way to, to communicate, a mm-hmm. trumpet to sound the orders, how she would say that, and um, a department store and a factory. Mm-hmm. And three out of those four things within 10 years came into being. Wow. So she was she was on a on a roll on a mission. Now and there were other um, there were other independent I mean other benevolent organizations who had followed that pattern before. She was the one that took the independent order of Saint Luke into that path and uh, stood out as a, a woman who was doing these things. Right. That an African American woman doing these things, which was pretty much unheard of. Right, and would it have been more upsetting to someone that it was a woman or that it was a black person? <laughs> you know, <laughs> depends on who you are. Okay. <laughs> which 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 aspect are you biased against? What she'd say is that there's no one more circumscribed or hemmed in than the African American woman. Sure, because you are looked down upon. Now, these are my paraphrasing. You're you looked out upon by the whites, but also by black you know, black men too. Right. So that's why she worked tirelessly, without sleep, to try to uplift African American women. Right. As as just like herself. And and I also um, is there you know because she's doing a lot of things, but it's similar things to a lot of the other pretty prominent people in the neighborhood. I mean, so is there like a 
point when, I mean, does she hang out with William Washington Brown and John Mitchell Jr.? Like, they all go out and have tea together, or, you know. <laughs> or plan together. Well, we, there's a really uh, cool picture that we have in our, in our collection, our Maggie Walker uh, archives, and it's a photograph of the prominent leaders at, uh, in Richmond on the stoop of her house. And it's after 1922. Um, John Mitchell is one of those right there on the stuff. So, mm-hmm. yes, they would Who's the, like the editor of the uh, Richmond the, Planet? Of the Richmond Planet. Right. Right. So he was an editor and she was an editor, too, of the newspapers. Um, and they would work together to fight against um, segregation on the trolley cars, mm-hmm. for example. So these different benevolent organizations would pull together to address issues that were affecting the community. Right. Um, she wasn't standing alone. She and was, would William Washington Brown have been involved in that? Or is he... Do you know I mean? He always yeah. He's always a weird figure. He never seems to be connected with anyone else. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I, in, in the reading that I've done. I've, yeah. I'm not as familiar with the the effects of the true reformers. I haven't studied them. Right, because I guess he's yeah. the first, he opens the first chart, gets, or first gets the first bank. charter for a bank in the United States. Correct. 1888, um, I think. Yeah, is. and then I think he waits until 1889 to open. Right, because um, he wanted to make sure their bank opened on the, the the day of the fall of Richmond. It right. was a very symbolic day mm-hmm. for them to open. And and there's a I guess the technicalities there's a bank in D C that opened before, before them, but they got the first charter. Right. Um right. and yeah. But but in I guess with John Mitchell Junior, um I mean she, she runs for high office, right? With the oh, yeah. Yeah. with the Lily Black Party. Right, right. She runs for Secretary of Education. Right. Along with that. And and he runs for governor. Right. He, um, so they're on the same ticket. Yeah, and I guess that's. Um, I, th- I, I know that's going forward, um, but I, th- I want to say that's 1922? 21. 21. All right. Mm-hmm. Um, so women are just uh, getting the right to vote. Right. And then you have a black woman running for. For, na- for state office, right in 1921, on the Lily Black ticket. But I mean, but what are they doing? They know they're not getting elected, right? They're making I mean, a statement. Yeah, I mean, what, what's because the the party, the white the whites in the Republican Party mm-hmm. had an all white ticket, mm-hmm. and so this is in re- response to that, saying, "Well, if you're not going to allow blacks anywhere on your ticket." This is what we have. You have the lily white ticket. We have the lily black. Ticket. Right. And and is there, um, you know, and they don't get elected, but the Republicans don't get elected either, right? Who they were trying to make their their statement. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, from from what I understand, I mean, I, you know, the but I guess that I don't know. You have to She's, make a stand somewhere, right? And I guess we've got that's that that's pretty. Fun kind of far ahead in the, the, the timeline of what we're talking about here. But so she's, so we're getting into the bank. Um, and, and you mentioned that that's when she gets national prominence, right? Does, does she actually have, I mean, is this, I guess just for perspective, mm-hmm. she's not a, a famous Richmonder, right? I mean, she's a famous American or is it, she yeah. would have had that credibility. She would have had that credibility. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so and she's working on the same level as Booker T. Washington. 
and uh, W.E.B. Du Bois. Mrs. Walker is on the board, national board of the NAACP, and mm -hmm. she was a, uh, essential in establishing the Richmond branch of the NAACP. Mm -hmm. She's on several uh, interracial inter um, committees in her lifetime. She's also uh, on several national uh, national organizations working for the benefit of um, education and for the benefit of uh, African-American women mm -hmm. and youth throughout. So she, there's a huge long list of national uh, uh, national organizations that she's a part of. She's even at one point nominated for the Spring Arn uh, Award, which is uh, from the through the NAACP, mm -hmm. and she loses that award to um, uh, James Weldon Johnson. He's the one. James, that, dang it! Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> but he's the one that writes what becomes the Negro National Anthem or Black National Anthem. Sure. So. She's on that same level, right? That that people are seeing what she's doing, and uh, hmm. so that's that really tells you that she is not just uh, Richmond only, right? And with her reach. one of the things I found was interesting is that um, there's a lot of pictures of her, quite a few, um, and it doesn't seem like that's. I mean, at a time when pictures are still pretty rare. I mean, like, I mean, you know, yeah. definitely not taking selfies and stuff. Yeah, the, yeah, um, definitely, definitely. You know, but I mean, you know, even John Mitchell Jr., there's, there's, I only know mm -hmm. of a couple yeah. who's pretty famous here. Um, I, I guess what I, what I was thinking about is, is she, uh, is she media savvy? I mean, marketing savvy? Or is it, is, you know. Yeah, I would say so. She's like playing, she's playing the game, right? She's not yeah. just a hard worker. She's out there. Right. Well, she is traveling constantly. To mm -hmm. promote the order, I mean, how do you go from an order, a group that's practically broke mm -hmm. and, and low on membership, to one that's reaching twenty three or twenty four states? Right. How do you do that? You get out and you work hard. Right. And the thing to remember is, the last six years of her life, she's confined to a wheelchair. Mm -hmm. She still keeps going. She gets her car. Uh, Adapt, it makes adaptations in her car mm -hmm. so that it can accommodate the wheelchair right. and she can keep on going. Sure. She continues to lay the groundwork for, um, as she, her health deteriorates, she lays the groundwork for the members of the order to continue after her, training new people up to come behind her because she has that vision that this is, is something fantastic for the order to do. It must live on beyond me. Right. So she's so that's how it became as strong as it was. And and what was her health issues? Well, we now know that it was uh, likely tied to the, her diabetes. Mm -hmm. That she um, she does die of uh, and falls into a diabetic coma, and that's how she dies in 1934. So it's probable that her her health issues, her uh, lack of being able to move um, her legs has something to do with the diabetes or, con or lack of control of, the di of diabetes. Right, okay. Because this is still early on. She, she uh, it does uh, have access to insulin and things like that, but that's, that's new medicine mm -hmm. at that point in time. So. 
And and when is that? Uh, so so how, I, mean, I think you may have just said, but how how part of his, what part of her life is she in the wheelchair? From I mean, 1928 in January 1928 uh, until she dies in December of 1934. Okay, and she's still traveling as much. She's still traveling as much as she can. Okay, and and before that, she had had trouble walking um, after a fall in 1908. Mm-hmm. A fall, trip and fall down the stairs where she really um, damaged both of her knees and took, I believe, about a year for her to recover from that. And from that point on, she you know, walks with the use of um, leg braces at times and she goes to Hot Springs, Arizona. Uh, no, uh, she goes to Hot Springs to um, recover, uh, to, to take advantage of the the healing waters thing, right. as many famous people would do, mm-hmm. um, but eventually nothing could really help. But it's interesting how John Mitchell would refer to her; he would call her the lame lioness. <laughs> so she may not be able to walk, but right. she's still got the, the teeth. Yeah, <laughs> and, and spirit. And and he can't find. I mean, that's like more. Uh, I mean, especially at that point, that would have been looked down on. Right, I mean, so it's like, yeah. so a black woman in a wheelchair, it's like, come on now, give me something here. <laughs> yeah. But she, she kept on going. Right, she, yeah. Did, did, she didn't let it dissuade her from continuing the work that she was so intent on doing, the sure. mission that she was, was on. I'm going to pop in here just for a second and say if you are enjoying this show, uh, please head over to historyreplaystoday.org and click on the support button. Make a donation. Keep this podcast going. Keep it free. I'd really appreciate it. And if you have the means to sponsor, that'd be awesome. You know, every little bit counts. We'll go ahead and get back to the conversation. Sorry for the interruption, but invest. Invest in this show. And that's at historyreplaystoday.org historyreplaystoday.org and click on the support button. Thanks a lot. And, and um, the so getting into like the back to like the bank um, having the bank department store the newspaper here. The newspaper's going all over the, the country. Right? It's, it, mostly it's a weekly newspaper being sent out to the members of the Order of St. Luke mm-hmm. and anyone else who wanted to subscribe to it. So is she based, I mean, she, you know, she's not starting department stores in Baltimore, right? right? Or starting banks in Baltimore. Right. Does the the she, bank is a local bank, right? I mean, she had hoped to be able to start more branches outside of, of Richmond. Okay. And there had been plans to start a branch in Washington, D.C., but those, that didn't materialize. Eventually, uh, a bank in uh, Hampton becomes a part of the consolidated bank and trust. Okay. Um, and so it doesn't become a national bank, but it's a very strong local bank. Right. It stays that way um, even through the Depression, through the Great Depression, because Mrs. Walker merges her bank with two other smaller black-owned banks mm-hmm. to become, instead of just a St. Luke bank, uh, penny savings bank. It becomes the Consolidated Bank and Trust. Right. Consolidated Bank and Trust continues until uh, for over a hundred years as a an independent black-owned bank. Right. And now it's a, di- uh, a division 
of Premier Bank still running mm-hmm. on at First and Marshall. Right. So she would look at it, I think, and say, "Well done." Right. It's it's still a bank, still doing what its purpose was to do to serve this community in Jackson Ward. And still only a couple blocks, right? The original one was like what on was on Second Street. Well, it it moves from the time it was first. Uh, from the time it was first established in 1903, mm-hmm. it does move. Okay. Uh, so it starts out in the headquarters building of the Independent Order of St. Luke, which is located um, with, on the other side of 95 now, uh-huh. um, just across there. So it had um, uh, St. James. Right. But okay. And then it goes to be inside the Emporium on Broad Street, and then eventually ends up okay. in 1911 at First and Marshall. So then when... <clears throat> That building, when the bank um, decided to move out of that 1911 building, they just moved to the other corner. Okay. And built the new bank. Right. Which is the the current bank today. Yeah. And so that building on, uh, I guess it's on St. James. It's, Mm -hmm. I mean, I think most people know it as the weird abandoned building on, you know, on the interstate. Right. Um, You know, it's like, I guess... It's Six Mount Zion is on the left. Yeah, Six Mount Zion is on then, that side of the, the opposite side of 95, mm-hmm. from almost directly across from the, the St. Luke headquarters building. Right, which mm-hmm. I think it's uh, a couple things I think are interesting about that is um, it gives you first a good idea that the, the, the interstate wasn't always there and that that community was connected. Yes, you could easily go back and forth. Right. You know, um, this is, you can stand on the back porch of our visitor center here, which is a building right beside Mrs. Walker's house. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can see the St. Luke building from here. Oh, you so, can? Yeah. That's you awesome. Can, yeah, you can, You can. when the, the leaves are off the tree, you get a really good good view. You really get a sense Could of she power. see it from her back porch? Sure. Sure she is. So, yeah. <laughs> out there with binoculars, like spying <laughs> off her. Y'all better get to work. I can yeah. see you. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah. the, the, the headquarters building is just a few blocks from the house and the bank is another uh, right. three four blocks from the house so she could have confined the way I see it she could have confined herself just to being in this short block area but she didn't right she was too big for that I, you know, I mean, t- she had too much to do too much to say too much to to affect than just confined so physically she may have just been in these this area Right. But her effect was bigger than that. It's huge. And uh, that building is built in 1903? The, the, the St. Luke's Luke, building? The St. Luke's building. It is, um, there was a building they had used before in that same lot. Mm-hmm. And then, yes, they do build the St. Luke headquarters building. Um, um, I just don't remember all the dates. I'm not that. That's fine. That's fine. Dates. But I mean that that's yeah. that time because yeah. I guess what and I'm then getting they expand it so that being um, three stories at first, then they have Charles uh, Russell uh-huh. who is one of the first black architects licensed in Virginia and also a, a, a professor at Virginia Union University. They mm-hmm. have him design the expansion. Mm-hmm. And so then it goes into being a, a four-story building with uh, rooms that people could rent for meetings. It had the printing area, print, printing area uh, down in one level and then offices 
for the Order of St. Luke in the upper level. Mm -hmm. And I think that was 1911. Okay. Because they had to move out of the Emporium building into the, the headquarters building. Right. Well, and I guess the other thing is that's a good sized building for black or white, right? That's I mean, right, that's, right. I mean, I kind of. Yes. Yeah. It, it, and it, uh, I mean, it really kind of shows that that's a, a thing, right? It's mm -hmm. not, you know, yeah, they, uh, it, it's a force. Well, yeah, they're well established. I mean, mm -hmm. they, and they own, they, they purchased the building. They own it. Right. You know, so that's, that's showing some, some, um, uh, the, the dream of owning the property rather than renting. And then they use it to bring income. And for the organization, right? Do you is, do you have any idea if there's anything? I mean, is anything happening there, or is it just? Well, the, not that I know. Um, it's, it's owned by the Stallings family. Mm -hmm. Ron Stallings is the one uh, that he and his family uh, restored the Hippodrome Theater. Mm -hmm. There's often been talk about what to to do with that building, to have it restored, to have it as a public-private venture. Mm -hmm. uh, and th at this point, there's. But there's no firm plans that I that I, I know of. Mm. It's too bad. Mm -hmm. um, hopefully, someone's making plans right now. Uh, yeah. While we're recording, they're out there th trying to fix it. <laughs> um, but uh, so she, you mentioned that she has a lot of uh, trage other tragedy in her life, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, her. Um, I know her husband is killed by her son. Mm -hmm. Accidentally shot and killed in um, July of 1915. Okay, and so that's pretty early on in this whole right. process as well. Right. Yeah, she, her younger brother dies at a young age too. And then her son, Russell, her oldest son, who is the one who accidentally shot his father, he dies at age 33. Mm. And um, her mother, whom she's close to all of her life, dies in 1922. And um, even before that, Mrs. Walker and her husband had a, a middle child. Um, Russell's the oldest, Melvin's the youngest. Armstead was the, the middle child, and he died at, at seven months old. Wow. So she loses so many of her family members before, uh, by 1922. Right. But in, and what happens there? How's he? How are you going to accidentally shoot somebody like that? I mean, mm -hmm. I mean, what, what's going on? Well, there's a series of robberies. Now, I'm looking back at the court records because mm -hmm. this did go to trial, mm -hmm. um, and the court records would show that um, you know, try to pull it all together. The, this the, what happened is that there had been a series of robberies in the neighborhood, mm -hmm. and so everyone's kind of on edge at that point. So. Um, when Russell is sleeping out on the sleeping porch here, he uh, early in the morning he um, thinks he hears something. Uh, so he and his father Armstead go out and borrow a pistol, bring it back home that 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 day, and they um, store the pistol in Mrs. in their bedroom. They walk you know the the parents' bedroom. Mm -hmm. Well, later on in the evening, while Russell and his mother are downstairs on the porch. And Armstead is supposed to have gone out to another meeting. Um, a neighbor sends her son across the street and say, there's, there's somebody on the roof. So Russell, he's about 25 or so, mm -hmm. uh, runs up, gets the pistol. And when he gets out to the back of the house, there's um, a window that you can, is covered, but you can see movement. Mm -hmm. So he takes aim and he fires. 
then you run some, I got him, I got him, I got mm. him. But when they come back up, they find that it's not a robber, but it's his father that he's accidentally shot. And what's he doing on the roof? That's the big mystery. No one, even within that, that trial account, that um, court account, they don't, no one's ever really figured out why he was on the roof rather than having gone to, to the meeting. Wow. And this is a pretty long, drawn-out court case, right? This is not, like, acquitted the day after. I mean, right? Right. Yeah, they're trying to establish that it or was it an accident or was it um, was it purposeful? Was it murder? Right. And through, I believe it's four months of the trial, uh, they do establish that it is an accidental shooting. Wow, four months. Mm-hmm. That's brutal. Right. But the effect on Russell is is long lasting. Sure. You know, it's it's oh, yeah. very difficult for him to, to understandably. That, so. And so um are we looking at uh is the white powers that be are doing this president because I I guess part of the deal is like I mean whenever you get uh um powerful, right? You always mm-hmm. find enemies. Yes, yeah. Um, and she, and she would say that they were those who were enemies would would look at it and say, well, it wasn't an accident. Right. So that's why, that's part of why it goes to, to trial, just to establish whether it was an accident or not. Okay. And and does she, because I know, especially within the Lily Black Party business. Yeah, and this, um, now that, that's a couple of decades later. Right. Right. But I, I'm saying, like, I know from that, uh, I know at least John Mitchell Jr. had, you know, because... Uh, you know, they're basically trying to get some respect from the Republican Party, so they run, splitting, you know, taking away a lot of the black vote. But I know he had a lot of pushback because people were saying, well, you know, you're going to lose, the white Republicans will lose, then we got the Democrats. That and, sounds so modern, you know, it? Right. <laughs> but he got, you know, persecuted for the rest of, you know, a yeah. lot of, I mean, and is she having the same kind of, um, you know, because she's putting herself out there. She's an act, right. you know. Right. An and, activist and, leading from, leading in the front. She's right in the forefront. She does have people who are, are enemies of her, who want to, to be where she is. Right. Who feel those waves. Right. Right. As she's making right. waves, they're getting right. pushed down by this stuff. Right, right, right. So, but what, um, what happens during this period when, when Russell's on trial and when there's question about, and she, at the same time, is up for reappointment as the leader of the order. And there are those who say, well, there's too much going on. We should not, not reelect her. Maybe this is too much. She should be removed from office. Well, they put it to vote, and she is chosen again as the leader. Too. So there's a, that confidence right. in her abilities. I feel like there's a Joe Morrissey joke in there but it's probably <laughs> probably disrespectful so I'll, I'll keep it to myself <laughs> but yeah there there's there's they do reelect her to continue on and she is the the prime leader of the order until 1934 right even after that so. and, and and i guess another part of would uh, would she have considered herself an activist i guess that's like a nor- a, a, a modern term um but she yeah. just was she just she's like this is just what I do or she's yeah. well she's she is her philosophy is um, never stand around saying crossing your arms saying there's nothing I can do right just 
go and do what you can and and just go and get out and, and do it. Right. Well, and I guess the, that's what you're called to do. But I mean, I guess my question is, would she have seen that just as, you know, as, you know, a department store? We need a department store, so I'm just going to go make a department store. Or is she seeing that more as I'm going to go make a statement and I'm going to go have a department store? Make a statement. Okay. Make a statement because it's in her speech um, that we have labeled race unity. Mm-hmm. She, that's what she's talking about, bringing the um, black uh, group, the, you know, the black community together to be more powerful together mm-hmm. than they are separately. To take the few nickels and turn them into dollars. Right. So, so by combining, you can be more powerful. And she, so it was purposeful, mm-hmm. what she was trying to do. The... Uh the car you mentioned, she turned a pretty dang nice car too, oh, yeah, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, always. Um, and now the best cars you could, the same kind of cars that other prominent whites would be driving. She was in them, and making a statement there too. Right, as even like an early kind. I mean, that's like a, a pretty amazing. Um, she was a pretty early adopter, right? Am I correct? Oh, like, yeah, she had an electric car early on when they. When they first came out, and then she had—I'm um, I, not really good at the various names of them—but she had what was was the top-notch car. Right. I remember seeing a picture. I can't—I I don't know anything about the cars Packers. either, but like, um, I know enough to look at it and say, "Dang, that looks cool!" Like, yeah. <laughs> but whatever it's called or um, right. manifolds or whatever the heck it has yeah. in it, I, I, I never really. <laughs> um, but the. Uh, the, would or after her death this is actually something you guys actually just posted on your Facebook page okay. um, there's some kind of dispute over her will well her will were, uh, was a combination of notes so so you have these these notes of, of what is to to happen with her property and, and things like that so I, I wouldn't say it was a knockdown drag out dispute but you know it wasn't written out firmly what was going to happen with everything. Okay. You know, somebody, someone would get this and someone would get that, but it was written on, I don't want to say post-it notes. Right. <laughs> That's a modern thing. But it was a series like that rather than something drawn out and uh, put in by a lawyer into the courts. And so what her own her only surviving child, her son, right, her Malibu. son, mm-hmm. um, I guess he... And I, I was a little confused from the, the post um, if he was the one wanting more, or if he was. Yeah, I think yes. I, I think so he, he thought he deserved more. Yeah, or or you know, I think that there were some things that went to the grandchildren, and then he was to get the house, but he had to pay off. Right, uh, it was like so five thousand dollars still yeah, owed on the he, house. Yeah, yeah. In order to keep it, but he dies within the a year or two of Mrs. Walker, and his wife Hattie then continues to live in the house, and it's Hattie who made sure that it was preserved and is becomes and because of that work, it's now a historic site. Right. So you know, so even though it was to go to Melvin, his uh, not his wife, um, Russell's wife Hattie, mm-hmm. his brother's wife. 
um, stays in the house and then lives in it. Or, okay. So. And and so it was actually, they, so the walkers lived here until it becomes a museum. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. It is. It is. They do have a caretaker to take care of it when um, Hattie Walker moves to Chicago to live with her daughter, Maggie Laura. Mm-hmm. But still, it's continuously held by a family member or someone who is working for the family member. Right. Until it becomes a national park site. And and I guess the house itself, I mean, this is what Quality Row, right, Correct. is what this was known they, as. They, yeah, the, this block of Lee Street, they were referred to as Quality Row because you had doctors and lawyers and uh, prominent teachers and Mrs. Walker as a banker. Mm-hmm. You had those of the upper upper stratus of the, the black community living right in this block. Right, sure. Um, and, and is there, uh, I guess I had talked to Ben about, you know, about the Hippodrome we did when we did that one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember him saying, I was asking him he about, you know, if Maggie Walker would have ever gone over to the, the Hippodrome and he was, mm-hmm. he said he probably, you know, but that would probably been a little too low class, I guess, for <laughs> well, him or whatever. I think the family story is that Maggie Laura, her granddaughter, would go over and see things at the Hippodrome and then she'd come back to her grandmother's room where we had, her grandmother has this great big mirror mm-hmm. and she'd do the performances that she saw and, and her and Maggie Laura's mom had to say, stop encouraging her. <laughs> so, and, so that's a scene I like to imagine. It that's just amazing. Give some humanity to it. So perhaps the Hippodrome was more hip yeah. <laughs> for Maggie Laura than it was for, for what grandma would, yeah. do, would say. Well, that's kind of what I was thinking, because it seems like, uh, she seems like a very conservative, I guess is the way to say it. I mean, I, you know. I think it depends on what part of the life you're talking about. Oh, is it? Okay. I, I would, as is any, it? I'm just putting my oh, right, sure. of any person. You right. have to be specific about what period of time you're talking Absolutely. about. Absolutely. So we can look in her um, music collection that we have yeah. and you see that she liked opera okay so you know, that's that's one thing so I don't know if they were doing opera at the Hippodrome in the 19, 1920s or, right no, um, or late, early 1930s I don't know what they were you know, what that's they were doing at that theater so would she have been there with I don't know but we had that family story about Maggie Laura that's a fantastic detail uh-huh. of the, her liking opera that's amazing mm-hmm um, and uh, she's listening to records, or is she there's going a, to opera houses? Well, there's a, a there's a phonograph in the house mm-hmm. that they would, would play the phonograph records, and you have the radio, so you have radio shows mm-hmm. that you that you could listen to, uh, and we do have records of the, where she's written in her diary that she's gone to the theater, so she saw. Charles Gilpin, who's a, a native of Richmond, mm-hmm. um, becomes a very well-known stage actor in New York. Right. And she writes in her journal that or that she's going to see Emperor Jones, where Charles uh, Gilpin is playing the lead. In Richmond? In Richmond. Oh, wow. Yes. I didn't... Because so that, that was like his breakout. That was like the thing he was known for, um, mm-hmm. and which... Is one of these weird, uh, very strange things that I think because it's one of the most famous actors of the early twentieth century, like yes. black or white. Yes. Um, and the only thing most people know of him is just his last name on the housing oh, projects. Right, 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 right. 
Well, he comes, and I believe he was at the national, so she has a, a she goes to see him um, perform as Emperor Jones, and that connects to what we're doing with our matinees with Miss Maggie mm -hmm. this year. That part of the what we're going to be doing is showing vintage films that connect to um, Maggie Walker and or her family. So we'll be featuring Emperor Jones the movie with um, Paul Robeson. Mm -hmm knowing that connection between Maggie Walker, Charles Gilpin, and the play. Right. Emperor Jones. That's fantastic. Yeah, it was a, we got a bunch of, of cool, cool move, four movies that we're going to be showing. Yeah, I didn't even realize that he actually played that here, performed it here. Mm -hmm. um, Came back home. I, yeah. And, and, and I mean, I guess, because it, it, it really is an amazing, I mean, you know, with... You know, kind of Bojangles around, right. um, coming back. Mm -hmm. um, and you, Bojangles joins the Independent Order of St. Luke. Right. Oh, does he really? Mm -hmm. So he becomes a member of the order. Oh, good for him. And is he active, or is that just... Uh, uh, well, he's as active as you know, come living elsewhere, living in New York, and then but you come home to Richmond and... You're a member of the order, and the order also had a branch up in New in New York, right? Too had a, had a division in New York, so yeah, he's he be active. I just don't know specifically, right? Yeah, I didn't know. that's fine. Was. Yeah, um, it, it's pretty interesting. Just the more you find that he's all over the place, mm -hmm. like he's just got his hands in everything. Yes, yeah. Um, not just the you know tap dancing. Yeah, did, oh, did, no, did no, all no, kinds no, of other amazing the, stuff. Right, and he's the one that's responsible for. Um, making sure there's a, a traffic light so the kids can go back and forth safely uh, to school. Right. It, and that's the corner where his statue is. And that's right. why that statue is there. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a beastly intersection. Five yeah. ways. It makes no sense. So, <laughs> so yeah, he was he, one of the first traffic lights in the intersection. And one of my favorite things is that he held the world record for the fastest 100-yard run in reverse. Really? Sure did. <laughs> the Guinness Book of World's Record. He was um, uh, the only thing I've seen is he. He apparently claimed at one point because he didn't. He didn't uh, explain. There's a lot of these weird things he didn't explain. Mm -hmm. um, but he apparently uh, alludes to at one point that he's um, started running backwards because he had to dance. He could never dance the lead, oh. so he self felt like it kind of you know helped train. Yeah. Or if he wanted to dance in white movies. Yeah. Um, huh. But, uh, yeah, he... Um, and some of the details... Uh, this is one of my favorite stories of, of anything, that he yeah. apparently raised, does this fundraiser um, to get a, this young college kid to, um, to, to Europe uh, where they're, you know, all of his you know, famous friends come out and play and whatever. And then yeah. the big... Uh, the, 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 the headlining event... Is that he's going to race him with the kid running forward a hundred yards, and he runs seventy-five yards backwards, <laughs> and apparently only lost by two yards, um, which was you know they're actually raising money to send Jesse Owens to Germany, oh. where what he wins eight gold medals or something like that. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Um, and becomes like the first fastest man in the world. Yeah, um, yeah. which oh. is just a excellent. All these connections. Yeah, it's anyway. yeah, it's fantastic. Um, the uh, and it's just really silly running backwards. <laughs> it's just you know. Why funny? Well, yeah, we're gonna have, of course, a, a Bojangles film too. Uh, yeah, with uh, uh, Shirley Temple doing mm -hmm. the Little Colonel. 
Right. So that's one of the, the films. So. Yeah, and yeah, it just is amazing how electric, I like a lot of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, and he he's a really interesting guy. I think it, I think it seems kind of somewhat mysterious really? um, in a lot of the things that I've read, but um, the uh, yeah, apparently his name was not his, he's actually Luther. Something, yeah. Right, Something and he's born true. Luther, and he never explains. I guess his brother's name is That's William. Right. But and he he gives like even like where the name Bojangles comes from, he gives like ten different yeah. you know reasons where that name comes. From. I don't know. Yeah, well, you can when you get fam- wealthy or famous, you can write whatever you, you want. do whatever you like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Explain it any way you want. <laughs> That's it right. Gives us historians something to do. Um, and it's also yeah yeah just keep it confusing just like so we can all argue about which one was right. Um, and and also got like uh, a question because I know I've got I've kept you here forever and somewhat rambled on and off and here in different places. But um, the on Twitter I got a this guy um, at Paul Crumlish is that saying um, what would Maggie Walker think of today's today's position on gender race. Um, and even disabilities, like based on discrimination after her life's efforts. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I guess he's getting at is it far enough, or you know, was she expected more or less? Or well, I I I, th- I don't know if there's more to do. Mm-hmm. I, as we know, there she would say, keep on doing it, mm-hmm. have, have and you know, ha- have faith, have hope. Have courage. Carry on to to accomplish what you you're setting to accomplish. So so it, it, the journey's not complete. Well, you know, and an interesting. I actually get the feeling that she didn't uh, consider it um, as much of a whole, uh, much of a problem. I guess it's a, you know, what, I guess didn't being, consider what? Uh, a being a black woman or disabled, right? It was, I mean, I guess it was a problem, but it was, she was going to do it anyways. Personally, yes. Right. She, she was going to do, continue to do what she saw needed doing. Right. And, and not stop in spite of roadblocks or stumbling blocks is, mm-hmm. the, is the word she used, stumbling blocks. That will come along your way. You stumble, you fall, you pick up, and go forward. Mm-hmm. And and then, like I said, kind of brings is is there any evidence of her being um, bitter that others aren't doing more? Right. Mm-hmm. She, does, she, she does so in her much. in her speeches she uh, does chastise you to the the members of the audience to pick up and do more. Mm-hmm. Uh, she isn't. She isn't there to do it all herself, and she doesn't do all of these things herself. Mm-hmm. She leads the people of the the members of the Independent Order of St. Luke to go with her to achieve all the things that they set out to do. Right. So she's a, she's a leader. There's a, a portrait that we have on loan from the Stallings family that is in our exhibit hall, and it shows Mrs. Walker carrying a, a flag and hundreds it seems like people behind her uh, following through on a path through this gate mm-hmm. and on the gate is written cooperation and, it, and it's leading up a, a steep hill 
and at the top of the hill is a building that says security. So it's marching to success for all through the gates of cooperation to the pinnacle of security. She's leading them, though. She's not doing it by herself. Right. And that's one of the best aspects of leadership. Mm-hmm. That if you if you can inspire others to come along with and to carry their part, right, you are successful. Yeah, so that's a fantastic place to mm-hmm. stop. Like, <laughs> okay. I think we got <laughs> on, our, on an inspirational oh, note. Good. Good. Um, I appreciate I appreciate your time. So that was it. Thank you very much, Gina Kason Rogers. Thank you for your time twice. Uh, thank you very much for listening. As always, let me know what you think about the podcast, historyreplaystoday.org. Uh, you can let me know on Facebook, like Stu did. Thanks, Stu. I'm, I'm really glad you're enjoying the show. Um, he said he's going back to listen to all the old episodes. The backlog, you can do that too. They're all there at historyreplaystoday.org or Stitcher or TuneIn, wherever you're listening to this. But uh, yeah, let me know. Follow me on Twitter, Tumblr, and if you're listening to this this far, write a review. iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you're listening to this, write a review for me. That would be awesome. It helps other people find the show. And, you know, go out and tell somebody about the show. That would be awesome as well. And uh, if you haven't been to the Maggie uh, Maggie L. Walker Natural Historic Site, do it today. Like their Facebook page for sure. And make it a great day. <laughs>